Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. For this podcast series, we're going to continue our history of the HPI section. This one is on the 1940s, global conflict, FCC, 100 octane, synthetic rubber, how wartime necessities advance technologies. You can access this full article in the March issue of Hydrocarbon Processing Magazine. To do that, simply go to www.hydrocarbonprocessing.com and click on the March issue. Now, history of the HPI, the 1940s. So here we're going to continue a look at the history of the HPI. Now, the first installment detailed the origins of the global refining and petrochemical industries. And then in the February issue of Hydrocarbon Processing, we detailed major refining and petrochemical discoveries of the 1930s. This included the discovery of catalytic cracking and polyethylene, the evolution of coking and gasification, the production of polystyrene, nylon, polyester, resins, epoxies, and polyurethane, and the inception of the jet engine. Now this one, we're going to focus on the 1940s. First, we're going to start with the onset of fluid catalytic cracking, or FCC. So in 1936, Eugene Hoodry started up the first Hoodry unit at Sun Oil's Marcus Hook Refinery in Pennsylvania in the United States. Now that novel fixed bed catalytic cracking unit was instrumental in evolving the gasoline production process. For example, approximately 50% of the 15,000 barrel per day unit produced high octane gasoline, which was double the production of conventional thermal processes. However, the novel Hoodry process, which was a significant advancement versus the thermal cracking process, wasn't able to satisfy increasing global demand for gasoline from vehicles and the aviation industry. Now, in the early 1940s, Standard Oil of New Jersey and Davison Chemical, which would later become W.R. Grayson Company, collaborated on developing powdered catalysts and an improved catalyst circulation design versus the Hoodry process. The companies were joined by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, and M.W. Kellogg. Through significant research, MIT professors Warren Lewis and Edwin Gilliland improved Hoodry's design. Now, one of the major changes was improving catalyst circulation. The new design enabled the catalyst to pass through both the reactor and the regenerator. Their patent was the basis for Standard Oil of New Jersey's 100-barrel-per-day pilot plant in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, also in the United States. The newly designed pilot plant was tested and after a few modifications was shut down and redesigned into a full commercial unit. On May 25, 1942, Powdered Catalyst Louisiana 1, or PCLA, Model 1 went online, marking the first use of a commercial catalytic cracking process using powdered catalyst. The plant's catalyst was supplied by Davison's Curtis Bay Works facility in Maryland, which also began operations in May 1942, three months later. Around that time, the refiner and natural gasoline manufacturer, which is the forerunner to hydrocarbon processing magazine, was retitled to Petroleum Refiner. That name change reflected the significant advancements and broader scope of petroleum processing. Now, the Curtis Bay plant was the world's first synthetic FCC production facility, and in 1947, Davison established the refining industry's first technical services facility for fluid cracking catalysts. Over the next two years, several new FCC units were built in the United States. The new refining process helped to significantly increase production of gasoline, motor fuel, and aviation gasoline, which was crucial in aiding the Allied powers in World War II. Now, let's go into the world engages in conflict. In September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. 
The invasion caused European allies to mobilize against Germany, setting off the largest and bloodiest conflict in human history. Central to both the Allies and Axis powers military operations was the ability to produce refined fuels. Oil and refined fuels were imperative during the war. Without fuel, things like gasoline and aviation gasoline, tanks couldn't run, planes would not fly, battleships and other marine vessels are trapped in port, and thousands of other vehicles like jeeps become obsolete. Oil was also indispensable for lubricating guns and machinery, both in the field and to fuel domestic industrial manufacturing. The Allies, especially the United States, controlled most of the world's oil production. Conversely, Germany lacked any kind of oil production, which was a major factor that eventually led to its demise. However, Germany did have a substantial amount of coal reserves. So to fuel its war machine, Germany primarily used coal conversion processes for synthetic fuels manufacturing. More than 90% of Germany's aviation gasoline and half of its total domestic petroleum products production came from synthetic fuel plants. And these plants primarily used the Burgess process and the Fischer-Tropes process, among others. Japan suffered the same challenge as Germany. The country had no oil production and virtually no refining system to produce fuels for its war effort. Japan did have major coal reserves and tried to venture into synthetic fuels production. However, it lacked the technical expertise and specific alloys and catalytic metals required for synfuels production. So once the U.S., which is the primary supplier of oil and finished products to Japan, cut off oil supplies to the island nation, Japan began a strategic military offensive in the South Pacific, seizing oil fields developed by Royal Dutch Shell in the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia, and Borneo, which also contained 90% of the world's natural supply of rubber. However, the Axis powers could not compete against the manufacturing juggernaut of the Allied nations. So several new technologies and initiatives were integral in the Allied war effort against the Axis powers. These included the production of 100-octane aviation gasoline, a boost in domestic refined fuels capacity, a more efficient way to produce pure toluene, and cooperation for the development of synthetic rubber. First off, let's look at 100-octane, which is a decisive advantage in aerial superiority. Now, in the mid-1930s, U.S. aviator Jimmy Doolittle joined Shell Oil Company as aviation manager, and his primary responsibility was to develop aviation fuels for military and civilian applications. Now, up until that time, both automobiles and aircraft ran off of 87-octane gasoline levels. However, the lower-rated fuel severely affected aircraft engine performance, negatively impacting speed, climb rate, service ceiling, and overall performance, especially at higher altitudes. Higher octane aviation gasolines, in other words, things like 100 octane, could fuel high-performance aircraft engines, boosting the performance of fighter planes. Now, after lobbying the U.S. Congress, Doolittle convinced the U.S. Army to adopt 100 octane aviation fuel as the standard fuel for aircraft. However, the fuel was extremely expensive to produce and prohibitively high to sell. In other words, the cost of 100 octane fuel was approximately $20 per gallon versus less than 20 cents per gallon for regular automobile gasoline. The solution to this challenge came from a new process in operation at the Marcus Hook Refinery in Pennsylvania. That process was a catalytic cracking process developed by a French engineer, Eugene Houdry. Now, the Houdry process was greatly enhanced by octane boosting processes, the most notable being invented by Russian-born chemist Herman Pines and Vladimir Ipentif. Now, Ipentif, he was the director of chemical research at Universal Oil Products, or UOP, and a professor at Northwestern University in Chicago. So he was responsible for the development of solid phosphoric acid, 
which is a highly active refining catalyst created by treating silica with phosphoric acid. The catalyst was instrumental in increasing octane levels of gasoline. Ipatif worked closely with fellow UP colleague Herman Pines in the late 1930s. The pair were instrumental in developing new polymerization, alkylation of aromatic compounds, or alkylation, which Phillips later called ConocoPhillips, invented the hydrofluoric acid alkylation process in the early 1940s to produce high-octane aviation gasoline. And the two also worked on isomerization of paraffins, or in other words, isomerization. And all of this was to boost octane levels in aviation gasoline to 100. These new processes enabled the U.S. refining industry to produce affordable, high-octane aviation gasoline, which would play a decisive role in World War II. Now, by 1940, the United States was producing more than 4.2 million gallons per month in 100-octane aviation gasoline, which at that time was the standard fuel for the United States Air Force, referred to as the U.S. Army Air Corps prior to the entrance in World War II. As war was declared in Europe, the U.S. gained its first customer for 100-octane aviation gasoline, Great Britain. The high-octane fuel powered Rolls-Royce Merlin engines inside British Hurricanes and Spit fighter planes, enabling them to gain a decisive advantage over the German Luftwaffe, as most of the Germans' fighter planes ran off of 87-octane aviation gasoline. Now, the 100-octane aviation fuel was an invaluable asset that actually helped Britain push back German air attacks during the Battle of Britain and aided Allied powers in establishing air superiority. Now, let's talk a little bit about TNT. Trinitrotoluene, or TNT, was first discovered by German chemist Julius Wilbrin in 1863. However, the first use of the material was for yellow dye. And about 30 years later, German chemist Karl Hossermann discovered its explosive properties. TNT was used by Germany and other militaries starting in the early 1900s. Now, according to literature, Standard Oil Development, which that company would later become Exxon, detected toluene in product streams from thermal reforming experiments on a petroleum-based naphtha. This discovery led to a new source to produce a significant amount of pure toluene. However, the produced product did not meet nitration-grade requirements. But upon using catalytic reforming, the process produced a 99-plus percent toluene stream that could be nitrated. From 1940 to 1945, toluene production in the U.S. topped 484 million gallons, with nearly half being produced by Standard Oil subsidiary Oil and Re Oil and Refining Company, and approximately 15% was produced by Shell. Now, this significant increase in production enabled the Allied powers to receive a steady stream of explosive materials. So let's move on now to synthetic rubber. Now, although the discovery of synthetic rubber dates back to the late 1870s, French chemist Gustave Bouchardet uh, created a polymer of isoprene. The first true synthetic rubber was created and patented by German chemist Fritz Hoffmann in the early 1900s. And during World War II, the Allies were nearly cut off from supplies of natural rubber. As you remember, the Japanese occupied rubber-producing areas in Southeast Asia, which represented 90% of the world's natural rubber production. Now, without rubber, Allied vehicles and planes could not be built or repaired. So as a solution, the United States government partnered with four rubber companies, B.F. Goodrich, Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, and the U.S. Rubber Company. That company would later become Uniroyal. And the reason they partnered together was to find a solution to the rubber supply crisis. However, to produce synthetic rubber, butadiene, which is the basic raw material, is needed. 
to produce much needed supplies of butadiene, several U.S. refiners built new facilities to produce product that would be used to increase synthetic rubber production. Researchers at the four big tire companies set out on new processes to increase synthetic rubber production in the U.S. In 1940, while working at B.F. Goodrich, Waldo Seaman, the inventor of an improved process for PVC production, invented a process for the copolymerization of butadiene with methyl methacrylate. The cost-effective synthetic rubber produced was marketed under the name Amberpole. Goodyear produced its own synthetic rubber. That process was uh, patented by Ray Dinsmore, which was called Chemigum. The other rubber companies patented processes to increase synthetic rubber production as well. However, in 1942, synthetic rubber producers were needed to boost production to aid the Allied war effort. So those four rubber companies, along with the United States government, agreed upon a common process to produce synthetic rubber called GRS, or government rubber styrene, which was similar to BNA-S developed by Germany. By 1945, the U.S. increased GRS production to approximately 920,000 tons per year. And due to this manufacturing juggernaut, Allied forces did not suffer from a shortfall in synthetic rubber for military equipment and vehicles. So let us examine cyanicrylates. So in 1942, Harry Coover, while working at the Eastman Kodak Company in the United States, was conducting experiments with cyanoacrylates. He was attempting to develop materials to build clear plastic gun sights for the Allies in World War II. However, while working with the materials, he noticed that it stuck to everything, making it very difficult to work with. And according to literature, moisture caused the chemicals to polymerize, and since virtually all objects have a thin layer of moisture on them, bonding would occur in nearly every testing instance. Since the material was highly adhesive, the researchers rejected the commercial use of it. It was not until 1951 that Coover and fellow researcher Fred Joyner recognized the potential of cyanocryolate as a quick bonding substance. His team was researching heat-resistant polymers for jet airplane canopies. These tests showed the unique adhesive properties of cyanocryolate, which is the adhesive required no heat or pressure to bond. So several years later, Eastman Kodak sold the material as Eastman 910, later marketing the material that's known today, super glue. Now the material, which is still in use today for many applications, has a unique story in that it was discovered by accident twice. Now let's move on to silicones. Now although discovered in 1850s, commercial silicones research and development would not take off until the 1930s. Early research was conducted by American chemist James Franklin Hyde while working at Corning Glassworks. By using English chemist Frederick Stanley Kipping's procedure for creating organic silicon compounds, Hyde was able to create a synthesized fluid that hardened into a rubbery mass. Kipping pioneered work in silicon polymers, even coining the name silicon in 1904. Hyde's discovery enabled Corning to produce high-temperature motors and generators. Silicones were used extensively in ships and planes during World War II as a cable and wire insulator. Hyde's work created the first commercially used silicone product and led to the formation of the Dow Corning Group in 1943, which is a joint venture between Dow Chemical Company and Corning Glassworks. The company's primary focus was to develop silicon products, including manufacturing products for the United States military in World War II. The company's first product was Dow Corning 4, an ignition sealing compound that made high-altitude flight possible. The compound prevents cornea discharge, enabling aircraft to remain at 35,000 feet for 8 hours. 
This benefited the Allied powers since planes could now be flown to the UK and North Africa versus transporting them by ship, significantly reducing the risk of them being bombed and destroyed by Axis forces. Silicon continues to be widely used in many different applications and industries today, including automotive, construction, energy, electronics, chemicals, coatings, textiles, and personal care, among others. Now, unconditional surrender and post-war discoveries. On May 7, 1945, Germany unconditionally surrendered to the Allies. Japan did the same on September 2, 1945. These events marked the end of the seven-year global conflict. The end of the European conflict also saw the breakup of the largest chemical and pharmaceutical company in the world, IG Farben. The company was formed in 1925 as a merger of six chemical companies, BASF, Bayer, Hoches, Agfa, Chemistry Fabrique Grissim Electron, and Chemistry Fabrique Vram. Post-World War II, the company was broken into several different entities. Agfa, BAS, and Bayer continued operations. Hocus acquired several other companies over the next several decades, as well as spinning off portions of its business into independent companies, such as Clarion. It also is presently a subsidiary of the French pharmaceutical company Sanofi. Although World War II had ended, the global refining of petrochemicals industry was just beginning. New technologies and discoveries continued to be made through the rest of the 1940s. In 1947, American chemical engineer Vladimir Hansel conducted experiments using platinum catalysts for upgrading petroleum. However, at the time, the use of platinum catalysts was thought to be impractical and uneconomical due to the cost of the precious metal. Hansel's research showed that using minuscule amounts of platinum, or 0.01%, was enough for an effective process. This research led to a novel process to produce gasoline with a higher octane rating, platforming. Hansel's platforming process was also generated a high yield of aromatic hydrocarbons, which are used in manufacturing plastics. The process was commercialized by UOP, and the first platforming unit was built in 1949 at Old Dutch Refining Company's refinery in Michigan in the United States. The platforming process was instrumental in the eventual removal of lead from gasoline. We want to thank you for listening to another installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series the main column.